Well, um, I am not sure there is, there is anything that can destroy a country, anything that can destroy a community, anything that can destroy a friendship faster than unchecked pride and self-righteousness. Uh, when, I, uh, when I look at the world, I, I think I referenced this in a sermon I taught a couple weeks ago on Sunday, but uh, I go to the coveted Planet Fitness to exercise twice a week to try to keep the dad bod off as long as possible. And, uh, and so I, I do treadmill work uh, on the front end of my workout, which is not that impressive. I just go at a slow pace and try to warm, uh, try to warm up to try to do something. And uh, they have screens all over, the, uh, all over the gym, and you know they have sports going on, news, documentaries about aliens, which is typically what grabs my attention. Uh, but, but occasionally, they'll have Fox News and CNN on right next to each other. And it's just like, uh, it's kind of comical, because it's like the self-righteousness and pride is like, here's the thing, people who have self-righteousness, like me, we try to hide it. It's like you try not to promote it, but you look out in the world and it's just like everywhere. It's like they're just lobbing, like people are just lob bombs at the left, you know, the right lobs bombs at the left, the left lobs bombs at the right. And it's like, it pretty much is just like, I'm better than you. I have a better thinking of, like, than you. I'm smarter than you. How dumb that you would think about the world right with the, that way. This is the right way to think about it. And you just see in the world, like, self righteousness is everywhere in our world, is it not? And essentially, when I think about self-righteousness, the attitude of self-righteousness, the voice of self-righteousness is just saying, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. And here's the thing. I I was talking to my wife, and I was just like, uh, I've literally said this to her multiple times. Pastoring in 2020 was horrible. The, the culture wars going on and all that stuff. And I have have conversations with my wife, and I, I, I literally will say this. I'm like, babe, I am dreading 2024. And she's like, why? She's like, I'm like, it's exhausting. And here's the reason. I'm not exhausted by the world. I'm, exa- I'm exhausted by Christians' attitude towards the world. Because here's the thing. Uh, next slide. Self-righteousness. Uh, the world is self-righteous towards the world. That shouldn't surprise us. The world lives outside of uh, Jesus' prescribed way of living. They haven't been transformed by the power, humility, and love of Jesus. So that should be accepted. But here's where it gets an issue. The church is self-righteous towards the world, is it not? Every now and then I'll get in conversations with people, and I've had this mentality at times. Tell me if you can relate to this, where uh, you're just talking to other Christians, you're like, I can't believe what the world is doing. I can't believe how they're talking about justice. I can't believe how they're talking about race. I can't believe what they're doing with sexuality. Almost like the church is like, we're better than you. And here's the thing that I've always wrestled with that. It's like, why as Christians are we surprised that the world is acting like the world? It's like, yeah, of course the world is operating that way. They don't know Jesus. So, and then the, and here's the thing. The, the world sniffs it out because they sense there's like this arrogant demeanor that the church can have towards the world. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus in here and that's kind of your perception or experience of the church is that the world is just self-righteous towards the world. But it doesn't stop there. The church is self-righteous towards the church, is it not? And not on an individual level. This is not what I'm talking about at this point. I'm talking about on a communal level where we've gotten this thing so like fragmented and we haven't understood that like we are the body of Christ around the city, around the globe, and we start measuring other churches' losses as our wins. And other churches' wins, losses for us. It's like, oh, you have so-and-so from our church now? 
Uh, I, I'm going to keep this very vague on purpose, but I had a friend go to a different church recently, and they encountered somebody that I knew at that church. And when this person went to that church, this person said, glad you finally realized that this is the place to be. And my heart, like, here's the thing, I wasn't mad, because I knew the person, I was like, that doesn't surprise me. But at the same time, I was like, is that really what, like, is that the attitude, the, the self-righteous attitude that, like, we're just normalizing now? And here's the thing, it's easy to point, but we do that too. We're like, oh yeah, it's way better here. What they, this pastor, my pastor, that teacher, it's way better here. So the church is self-righteous toward the church, and the world picks up that, but let's just be honest, Christians are self-righteous towards other Christians. I'm self-righteous towards you. You're self-righteous towards me. What I mean by that is, it just happens on an individual level. All right, and here's the thing. So it's rampant everywhere. The world is swollen with self-righteousness. We're swollen with self-righteousness. But here's two things that are, are, are if I'm just going to be honest, terrifying for me. The first thing is this. Self-righteousness is unintentionally grown. I've never met somebody, I've literally never met somebody as a pastor who's like, I'm really trying to cultivate self-righteousness in my life right now. It's like, hey man, like, let's, let's grab coffee. What's God doing in your life? It's just like, I'm just trying to nurture a self-righteous heart right now. But it, do, it, do, it just happens. Like, that's just, like, nobody intentionally tries to grow it. It's kind of like blood pressure. It's a silent killer. It just kind of creeps up on you. Uh, and here's the thing, too. Not only is it unintentionally grown, but it's always unknown to the person who has it before it's too late. It's unknown to the person who has it. Uh, typically, others see it in you before you see it in you. I, I've, I've, I've kind of like this illustration. I may have used it before, but I feel like self-righteousness, the I'm better than you attitude, it's like bad breath. Everybody knows you have it except the person who actually has it. And I remember, uh, uh, this is so stupid and silly, but sometimes I'll like lay down with like, my wife at night and we're like in bed having a super sweet moment, so I think. And I'm like, <laughs> babe, I just I love you so much. And she's like, your breath is horrible. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? I just brushed my teeth. She's like, I don't know. I don't know. But it's horrible. But isn't that kind of how it is with self-righteousness? You're like, you're like, you're like, someone's like, you just, your self-righteousness smells. And you're like, when somebody brings it up to you, you're like, what? Me? I'm no, no, I'm not self-righteousness. Is that true? Is anybody resonating with me? Um, for example, I had a, I had a friend recently, a couple weeks ago, um, sit, sit me down with another person, and uh, this person started to bring up areas in my life that he uh, perceived were self-righteous. And I remember when uh, he, he told me some of the things that he was bringing up, I was like, what? I was like, I, that is not my intention. I didn't realize I was coming across that way. And I remember I had to go back to the Lord and sit in his presence and go, like, Lord, is this self-righteousness? Like, is, that, is, that, is that self-righteousness in me? But that's just how it is. It's like bad breath. Other people see it before uh, you do. Um, I have a, another kind of silly illustration to uh, kind of make the point even farther. So, um, so I have a funny story, and I'm going to exaggerate it a little bit. But uh, So when, when I was younger, uh, my brother and I would go to our, our grandparents' house who live in Huntington Beach, my grandpa has this like kind of huge beard. Um, he's passed away now. A big Italian guy. Uh, I don't look anything like him. Uh, but so occasionally, like he took lots of naps, so he would like fall asleep on the couch. 
And I remember he would keep this uh, type of cheese in his fridge called Limburger cheese. Has anybody heard of Limburger cheese? So one of the things that you don't know about Limburger cheese is it smells. It's horrible. But they just, that's what they kept in their fridge. It, it was weird. And so he would he'd take naps all the time. So one of the things that my brother and I would like to do when we were little is we would go in the fridge and we'd cut up like small, small little bits of that cheese and then we'd stick it in his beard. <laughs> right, right underneath his nose. And so he'd wait. So first of all, sometimes he'd wake up, but sometimes he wouldn't. I remember the first time we did it, he, he, he didn't wake up and he woke up and he's like, what is that smell? He's like, it stinks in here. And I was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's doing my giggle. And, uh, and so, you know, so, and then he's like, man, maybe it's this room. So he went into the kitchen. He's like, man, it stinks in this room too. And we're like, <laughs> you know, and then, uh, and then he'd go into the other room. He's like, same thing, man, it stinks in this room. And then he'd go outside. He's like, man, the whole world stinks. Now, here's the thing about that story. I made it up. It's not true. <laughs> but here's the second. Here, here's here. <laughs> See, I got you. Here's the, here's the second thing from that story that it illustrates. Sometimes the stink is just on you. And that's how it is with self-righteousness. If you go around and you're like, it stinks, it stinks. They're the problem. They're the issue. They're, they, they, they. Sometimes the stink is just on you. And that's how it is with self-righteousness. All right, so because uh, I promise we're going to get into the passage, but I have to like we have to do some work to get there. Um, so how do you know if the stink is just on you? All right, here I got I got five indicators of self-righteousness in our lives. Because typically you're like I'm not self-righteousness. I mean, of course that's not me. Here's five indicators that the stink is on you. One, you lack compassion towards others. If you find the narrative of your mind or your thought life going like, hey. Uh, they just need to get their act together. Hard-hearted. Or, uh, you know, you look at people in the world that are in bad situations or people in your community and you're like, you know, they deserved it. That, that hard-hearted lack of compassion, that, that's probably an indicator that, that there's self-righteousness living in your heart. Uh, secondly, uh, you're more, more, I don't really struggle with this one, but you're, I mean, sarcastic. You're more aware of other people's failures than you are your own. Uh, you're, you just like, it's like, hey, what do they struggle with? Oh, let me tell you. Boom, 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 boom. What do you struggle with? Oh, I don't know. Let me think about that for a second. There's an awareness, like you're quick to recognize failures in others, but you're slow to recognize failure in yourself. Typically, these people categorize themselves as discerning. It's like, I can just see through it. I read people so well. I'm like, no, you're just self-righteous. There's a, there's a, you're aware of other people's failures more than your own. Uh, thirdly, you love the praise of people. Now listen, we all love the praise of people. Let's not pretend like we don't. I'm not talking about like the good affirmation that comes from people encouraging you. I'm talking about like an unhealthy love of the praise of people. Uh, I think of uh, like a self-righteous person typically likes to be seen by others in really high regards. So when people like are constantly praising you, you're like, yes, yes. You're sleeping, and those are the things you play through your mind. There's like a self-righteousness in that. Uh, fourth, uh, we would never say this with our words. Maybe you would. But you see yourself as just really important. It's like, God's so blessed to have me in the kingdom. I do the things nobody else does. Of course God would use me. Why is God using them? I'm better than them. Why aren't I leading? Why aren't I, 
You know what I'm saying? Like you see yourself as really important. Like there's like a, like Jesus has like the other, like there's people and then there's like, then there's you. Like, yeah, I should be the one to do that. Um, you see yourself as always right or always in the right. I like to, th- I will be honest, this is how self-righteousness comes up in me and I'm not even trying, I'm not going to try to pretend today. When I was writing this, I was like, yep, Lord, number five is me. Uh, in arguments, you're 90% right 100% of the time. Think about it, how many, you know, it's like, yeah, I might be a little wrong, but like, come on. I'm right. Uh, the biggest problem in the world is someone else. You just go like, what's the biggest problem in your small group? It's like them, self-righteousness. It's me. Um, and here's, here's the ultimate kicker. Uh, the self-righteous person hears this and has already thought of somebody else in this message. If you think that you, someone else needs this message, you just think somebody else, that person you thought of does need this message. But if you think that you, they need this message more than you, that's, a, that's, that's self-righteousness and that's a Pharisee. How are we doing? We haven't even gotten into the Bible yet. <laughs> all right, you guys ready for the story? Now that we're all ready and then we go, okay, it lives in me, all right, let's hear Jesus' words. Okay. <laughs> Luke 18, verses uh, 9 through 10. Let's just start here. So let's just like kind of get the setting, the scene. Uh, this is a parable. So this isn't a real story. Jesus is using this story to illustrate a point about the kingdom of God. And so this is what he says. All right, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. That's key. Jesus told this parable because in Jesus' audience, just like there is people in this room and just like there's me, there are people that are confident of their own righteousness. One, the second reason he told this parable is this, and, and to people who look down on everybody else so that I'm better than you thing. Now, this isn't like something people necessarily say with their words. Jesus is going to give, by the way, a very dramatic story to try to like, play out subtle things in our heart. Does that make sense? So this one, there's people who are confident of their own righteousness, and then there are people who look down on everybody else. And so Jesus told this parable, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, get the scene. So you have a Pharisee who is like a pastor, like a Jewish pastor. A Pharisee, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher of your Old Testament, the law. Uh, And then there's a tax collector. So a tax collector was... Uh, a social outcast, and not just because they like, were like, kicked out by the majority group because they were great, but because they were horrible. They were oppressors of God's people. And honestly, i got to be honest with you. I feel bad for the Pharisees. Like, I feel like this whole like, works righteousness thing, which I, is, that's a thing. Uh, but Pharisees get a really bad rap. If you were to be in Jesus' audience and hear the story, you're like, the Pharisee is like my pastor. The Pharisee, is a, the Pharisee is the good guy in the story, okay? So if you read this and go a Pharisee and you're like, ooh, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. The Pharisee was a good guy in the story. And here's why. I want you to understand. I want you to have some sympathy for the Pharisee. So the Pharisee movement started because Israel rejected and rebelled against God's law. And so as punishment for that, they had to go into exile. And part of that exile was being under the Roman Empire, being oppressed by the Roman government. So Jews of that day saw their disobedience, landing themselves in the position that they were in, being oppressed by the Roman Empire, right? So Pharisees, they look at what's happening and they're like, hey, nobody's taking God seriously. Just like we would go in our small groups at times and go, nobody's taking God seriously. 
I'm the person who wants to take God seriously. So what they do, they start a movement, a pharisaical movement, where they really try to like uh, ratchet up obedience to Jesus, or not Jesus yet, to Yahweh, the one true God. And they're like, because they want, they want to honor God. So like, at best, Pharisees are just people trying to get the people of Israel to take God seriously. Now that got out of hand in some ways, which Jesus will critique, but they're like the good guys in the story. They're like the pastor you listen to online or on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, you know, like it's the people you looked up to. The tax collector, they get a good, like the tax collectors get a good rap in the biblical story, but you would have heard the story and go, I hate the tax collector. Like you, like a, like a politician on the other side of the aisle that you disagree with. It's like that level of hatred is like what you would feel. They were the bad guys in the story. They, they were oppressors. They took advantage of the weak and vulnerable. They caused people to go into poverty. And they lived richly off of other people's being taken advantage of. Uh, I think the closest thing that I could think of, of like how you would like the flinch you would get if a tax collector walked into the room right now and you lived in that day is like a pimp. That's probably the closest thing. I remember, uh, so my wife just went to Vegas this last weekend, and then Ed Sheeran got canceled, and she had to come home without going to the show. Uh, but I remember last time in Vegas, or not even last time in Vegas, I went to the Dominican Republic last year, and I remember I was on the streets, and a pimp came up to our group and was like, hey, you guys want to have a good time? And I remember, like, in that moment, there was, like, this anger that I was like, how, how dare you try to use us to, like, demean women and use women's bodies for your advantage? Whatever level of flinch like, you would have, that's what you would have towards a tax collector. Does that make sense? Okay, so you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they both go to the same church. They're both going up to the temple to pray. So it's two men, same church, two prayers, one condemned, one walks away justified. All right? Now, here's the thing. When I was thinking about a Pharisee and tax collector, in my opinion, sometimes it's like so extreme. It's like Pharisees are horrible and tax collectors are horrible that we just like, it doesn't, neither one actually resonates with us. So Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a book that I was like kind of reading over the weekend and he tries to normalize who a Pharisee and who a tax collector would be like in this room. All right, so this is what he says about a Pharisee today. He goes, a Pharisee today, uh, Pharisees for the most part, have a pretty good opinion of themselves. Not a bad thing, but they do. They hold responsible jobs. They care for their families. They keep most of the commandments most of the time. I love that, most of the time. They're familiar with uh, the culture of church life. They give their offerings week by week in worship, and they usually accept positions of leadership when asked. So in every church, by the way, there is no like Pharisee and tax collector and then like a middle person. Like there are Pharisees in this room and tax collectors and there's no in between. So if you want to know what a Pharisee is, that's me. Like I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be honest. Like I'm a, I'm a church kid. Uh, I feel like I do most of the right things most of the time. I love my family. Uh, I have accepted a position of leadership. And like if you want to picture like this, this is me. I'm a Pharisee. And here's what I want to say. And some of you are Pharisees in the room, like that resonates with you. And here's what I want to say. Being a Pharisee isn't bad, being Pharisaical is. I need to say that one more time. Being a Pharisee isn't bad. It's not bad that I'm like that. But being Pharisaical as a Pharisee is bad. We'll talk more about that in a second. The second is, uh, the second group of people in the room, and you might resonate with this, is the tax collector. Okay, so tax men and women today are not all that different in appearance. That's important but they do not have a very good opinion of themselves. Many carry huge burdens of guilt from the past. Others are troubled by secret sins, addictions, poisoned relationships, and even despair. 
they manage to keep much of this hidden from others, often from their families, and they often attend church with fits. That's how I know I'm interacting with a tax collector. It's like, I don't want to go tonight. Maybe you resonate with that. And they have a difficult time feeling at home and accepted in a congregation. So maybe you resonate with the Pharisee. Maybe you resonate with a tax collector today. With that being said, all right, now let's read the story with, with that in mind. So let's look at the Pharisee's prayer. So like two men, two prayers. Let's look at the Pharisee's prayer. And this is in verses 11 through 12 if you are looking at your Bible. Okay, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Okay, I want to just, uh, just I want to I give a few observations about this prayer. Uh, first, notice that the Pharisee is standing by himself. Uh, in pride, he separates himself from others. Uh, a Pharisee's kind of mindset is like, there's others and then there's me. But you, guys, you guys, you don't know what I'm talking about? There's others but then there's me. So he stands off to the side. He, in pride, here's, by the way, pride will always distance you from other people and so with self-righteousness. So he's standing by himself. So he's standing by himself in his prayer. The second thing, I love this, the Pharisee is praying to God, but he's praying about himself. So notice, look, if you, looked at, if you have the passage, is it up there? Okay, he says God. All right, he addresses God. Now let me reread it this time. He says God once and then I five times. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all. Say it. I. I get. Here's the the thing about the Pharisee. He's glancing at God, but he's contemplating himself. He's glancing at God, he's contemplating himself. Uh, Third, uh, the Pharisee measures others against himself. So he's like the standard that he uses to judge everybody else. Not, 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 not God, not Jesus. The Pharisee uses himself or herself as the standard, as the measuring stick to measure everybody else. Uh, and here's the thing about self-righteousness too. Self-righteousness puts you on the throne. Self-righteousness in your attitude says, I belong on the throne. All right, so when I was, when I was growing up, uh, do you guys have assigned seats in your kitchen? In, not in your kitchen, in your wherever you eat meals around the kitchen table. Growing up, did you guys have assigned seats? Was that just my family? Okay, I was like, were we the weird ones? Uh, I was like, so I remember growing up, I was like, I, you know, every, my dad sat here, uh, I sat here, my brother sat here, you know, and everybody has like different tolerances for like people sitting in their seat. So I remember I'd like come in, I'd come home from like football practice in high school or something like that, or I'd come back from college at GCU. And my brother would be in my seat. I'm like, bro, what, you're, that's my seat. It's like, but you're out of the house. I'm like, I know, but that's out of my seat. Uh, but here's the thing. There's a, there was a rule in the family. You don't take dad's seat. Because my mom might be like, okay, fine. That's my seat, but you can have it tonight. When I, I remember it, like, coming home, I, like, I was like, because it feels on, like, it's like, that's a big deal to sit in dad's seat. So I would like come home and I'd sit in dad's seat. My dad's like, get out of my seat. <laughs> I was like, dad, I, just tonight. He's like, no. That's, that's my seat. Get out of my seat. And here's the thing. Self-righteousness puts you on the throne, and that's God's seat. 
And I think there's a gentle rebuke, and maybe not so gentle, where God says, I need you to get out of my seat. God is the only one who belongs on, on that seat. The last note I want to make about the Pharisees' prayer. Notice that the Pharisees' self-righteousness, this is important, was disguised in prayerful gratitude. I want to say that again. The Pharisee's self-righteousness was disguised in prayerful gratitude. So he's full of self-righteousness and he's deceived and he's dis- it's disguised and it- it's disguised in gratitude. He's like, God, I thank you. He's like, it's, you're like, so far so good. Why is this bad? Like, God, thank you that I'm not like them. Evildoers, robbers, right? Thank you. Like, Lord, I'm so thankful. He's like, thank you that I fast twice a week. It's like, okay, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that I tithe. And of course, like, we read that and we're like, what a jerk. But we do that too, do we not? God, thank you that I'm not like those Christians that don't care about what's happening in the world. God, thank you that I'm not like those Christians who sleep with their girlfriends and boyfriends. God, thank you. Am I getting too personal? God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that those guys at the gym are so into themselves when they do curls in the mirrors, but I, I'm not even wearing a sleeveless t-shirt. And I, God, thank you that I'm not like them. Okay, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> but the, hey, guys, uh, God, uh, here we go. God, th- thank you. Thank you that I, I don't dress like those people I see on Instagram. We do it too. Do we not? What's your God, I thank you, fill in the blank. I, may, I make light of it, but it's a, it, it, it's, it lives in us. Eugene Peterson goes on to say this, lean in. How easy it is to pray, quote unquote, without actually praying. How easy it is to acquire a reputation as a man or woman who is on good terms with God without bothering to pay attention to God how easy it is to use the setting of the church, 710, in the forms and words of prayer to avoid the demanding work of dealing with God. Given the ease of deception, is it any wonder that the place and practice of prayer should be the very best place we can avoid God without anyone noticing? Isn't that good? The Pharisee couldn't hear God's voice that wanted to work on his heart because he was drowning out God's voice with his own. And it, and it was, he couldn't see it. It was like bad breath. All right, let's move to the tax collector. Look at verse 13. So that was the negative example. This is the positive one. But the tax collector, remember, like pimp, oppression, like you would hate this guy if he lived on your street. You'd call your HOA and be like, get him off the street. Let weeds grow in his yard. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All right, I want, I want to compare and contrast. Jesus is brilliant in his teachings. I want, you to com- I, want to, I want to compare and contrast this a little bit. Notice, the Pharisee stood by himself in pride. The tax collector also stood by himself, but he stood by himself in shame. One isolates because of pride, I'm better than you. One isolates because of shame, I don't even deserve to be among you. She just goes, I like that. The Pharisee lifts his eyes up to heaven. 
the tax collector can't even lift his eyes to heaven. So just a little bit of cultural context. Uh, Jews prayed with their eyes open. Whatever like our culture is like, you know, like that's not how they prayed. Uh, Jews prayed standing up. They prayed, if you notice in the Gospels, whenever Jesus prayed, he's, he says he looked up, he blessed the food and looked up. Jews stood when they prayed and then they looked up. So the Pharisees standing, looking up in confidence and arrogance. The tax collector can't even pray in the same way his normal people do because he's so ashamed. Notice that the Pharisee praises himself to God. The tax collector pleads for himself before God. The Pharisee measures others to himself. The Pharisee is praying to God, but he's really looking at others. The tax collector is not even looking at others. He's using God to measure himself. And Jesus says, I like that. I like that. All right, I want to pause here. Um, if there is something that I want to like really poke at some of you, uh, and I want you guys to trust that God poked at me all week, so when I poke at you, it's not from arrogance, but it's like a loving poke, okay? Um, I have this, there's this strange dynamic. Uh, I will meet with Pharisees in this ministry. It's great, I love it. I'll meet with tax collectors in this ministry. It's great, I love it. Both are Christians, but they both have, you know, their own unique dynamic. Um, and typically how I know I'm meeting with a tax collector is how they talk about Pharisees, how they talk about churchy people. And here's one of the things that I've realized. There's this strange, deceptive thing about pride and self-righteousness where a tax collector can actually act like a Pharisee to a Pharisee, proving himself to be a Pharisee and not a tax collector. Are you tracking with me? No. Okay, I'm going to keep going. So typically the tax collector is like, man, like, I've screwed up. I don't feel like safe here. It's like typically they talk about it's like there's the churchy people. That's like kind of the language they use, like the you know the, the churchy people. You, you and your people, <laughs> and they kind of like remove themselves. But it's weird in how they critique churchy people. They do it with self righteousness, where they're like those Christians. I'm like you're a Christian, bro. Those those Pharisees always thinking they're better than people. I'm like. So you're elevating yourself over them, where, if, where there's this thing where like tax collectors end up being pharisaical to Pharisees. So there's this weird dynamic where you can be a tax collector and then have a Pharisee heart. Does that make sense? Tim Keller says this, those who condemn the self-righteous for the sake of self-discovery do so with ironic self-righteousness. You find yourself criticizing self-righteous people and then in doing that, you show yourself to be self-righteous. It's so ironic. It's like bad breath. You can't tell. You have it. Um, here, here's, here's the one thing I want to say. Don't judge people because they sin differently than you do. Their sin might be blue, and your sin might be pink, but your pink sin is not better than their blue sin. You guys tracking with me? Still doing okay? Okay. Let's look at how Jesus responds. Verse 14. So Jesus looks at these two prayers. He tells the story. Pharisee, like, I'm the best. Tax collector, I'm the worst. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, this is how Jesus responds. He goes, I tell you that this man, referring to the tax collector, rather than the other, referring to the Pharisee, he went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
Now listen, you guys have to get yourself in the story. It's easy, and I want to say this, Jesus is being dramatic on purpose to show subtle things that happen in our heart. If you listen to this story, you would be, your jaw would be on this table. The bad guy goes home justified, and the good guy goes home condemned. Like, you, you have to understand that. Jesus, Jesus, if he told this parable today, it would look different, and your jaw would drop just as much. And this is what Jesus says. He goes, the tax collector, the oppressor, the person that you flinch at, the person that, like, you're like, I hate them. Like, if I'm going to be honest, I hate them. I don't want to forgive them. Jesus goes, he goes home justified because he recognizes his sin. He's on his knees. He has a broken heart. He's not, like, Jesus isn't, like, celebrating him, shaming himself because Jesus likes seeing people do that. Jesus goes, he actually has a heart that can receive my rule and reign because he goes, God, I screwed up. Will you heal me? And Jesus goes, that man goes home justified. Now, if you're not a Bible student, justified literally means declared righteous in the sight of God. So the Pharisee who put confidence in his own righteousness went home condemned. The man who had no righteousness of his own but asked God for mercy actually goes home righteous in the sight of God. Jesus goes, those who humble themselves before God and before others will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves over others, whether that's in prayer or in attitude or in the church or out in the world, they will be humbled. So when I read the story, I'm like, this is, this is an incredibly powerful, potent story. And here's why I love this story. This story is absolutely so encouraging to me. And I hope this is encouraging to you because listen, what Jesus is saying, all you have to do is humble yourself. You don't have to come up with all these things. You don't have to do all these things. He's like, you just have to humble yourself. This story is so encouraging because you just have to humble yourself. But here's the thing. This story terrifies me because all you have to do is humble yourself. All you have to do is humble yourself. It is so hard to humble yourself, is it not? It's so hard. It's so hard to humble yourself. So here's how I want to end. How do we humble ourselves? How do we actually cultivate hearts like the tax collector? How do we oppose hearts that are like the Pharisees? So if you take notes, this is the, this is the thing I would want you to take notes on and go home and put into practice. This is the practice for the week, okay? Uh, I think there are four steps to cultivating humility in our life. If Jesus says, humble yourself, then it's a command to do it, so we should try to do it, right? You know? Okay, so how do we do it? Uh, the first step, I would say, of cultivating humility is asking God to search us. Listen, if self-righteousness and pride is like bad breath and you can't tell you have it, you need God to show you you have it. Is that not true? So David uh, in Psalm 139 prays this, and I think this is a beautiful prayer for this passage. He says, Listen, notice the words, search me. God, search me. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. I think this is a beautiful prayer to pray. And I don't know, it's also a scary prayer to pray because you don't know what God will show you. Have you ever done this? You're like, God, search me. And they're like, never mind. I don't want you to do that. Because I already know what I see, but like, I don't know what I don't see and I'm scared to see what I don't, you know? It's like, uh, have you ever, um, actually, here's the, part two to this is asking God to search us, but also asking God to search you through people and community. So notice, think of the thing where you go like, where you're like, hey, can I just sit down with you? How are you doing today? Good, how are you? Can you just tell me where I'm self-righteous right now? I, I mean, I don't want to do that. I remember these, like, I try, I try, I try. I don't always do it, but I, have, I try to have these rhythms in my marriage. I'm like, hey, can you just tell me what's hard about being married to me right now? You know? 
it stings, it's hard, because pride gets in the way. So we have to ask God to search us, and sometimes he has to search us through the people that know us best. I'm not saying this in arrogance or anything, but a practice I like to do with Jade at the end of every seven tenure, I was like, hey, what's great about working with me? It's my favorite part. Tell me, what's so, what's so great? <laughs> Tell me what's great about it. And then the follow-up question is like, what's, what's really frustrating about working with me? And that's the part I'm like, okay. Just this one, you only get 30 seconds to talk. The other one, you get, you know. <laughs> my, you guys get my point. Ask God to search this. Uh, all right, number two. And this is, I think, what the tax collector embodies. After God searches you, after sin is revealed in you, specifically after self-righteousness is revealed in you, we have to humble ourselves. We need to weep. We need to mourn. And we need to confess our sin. I think oftentimes we minimize the process of repentance where it's like, hey, you know, like, I'll do it this way. I screwed up. I go and confess to somebody. Don't try to fill in the blank of what I screwed up with. I'm just illustration. And the person's like, don't, don't even feel bad. Don't, 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 don't. And they like, like, they like, like, they block the process from actually carrying out. And it's like, no, like, there is, like, in a Western American culture where it's like, we don't like to feel bad, it's like, feeling bad is shame. It's like, if I feel bad for my sin, it's like, that's horrible. That should not happen. I'm like, no, you should feel bad for your sin. And not in like, you want to like, hit yourself or beat yourself up, but it's like, you, we sinned against God. It should cause us to mourn. So, so James, the brother, this is the brother of Jesus. He writes to a church that I would say is self-righteous. They're Jews. And he has to like correct them on a bunch of stuff. He's like, listen, you guys think like you're in because you're Jews. He's like, you're not. You need, to, you need to repent. You need to come near to God. And you need to, and specifically in James, you need to serve the poor. And this is what he says. Notice, he goes, wash your hands. Imagine, this is, how you, this is how you build a ministry. You have this type of message. Wash your, wash your hands, you sinners. Don't you dare talk to me like that. <laughs> Purify your hearts. You double-minded. You don't know my heart. Grieve. Mourn. Wail. Change your laugh. Stop laughing. Cry. Mourn. And turn your joy. Stop having joy. You need to have some gloom. Remember, he's, t- he's not talking to the tax collector who's already like condemning himself. He's talking to the Pharisee that's like, I don't got issues. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's almost like James knew the teachings of Jesus. I think this is a direct quote of what Jesus taught and James is applying it to this church. All right, guys, here's the point. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you cried over your sin? Don't have to answer out loud. You can, but you don't have to. No, genuinely, I'm asking. When was the last time you cried over your sin? I remember, I, I remember when I read this verse. I remember I came out, I, was, I made a terrible mess of certain things when I was a senior in high school, like sophomore year through senior year of high school. God changed my life. I remember nights where I would just weep because I was so ashamed of the things that I've done. And it was beautiful. And because it didn't stay there, but like that was like healing for me. Like I needed to weep. I needed to lament. Now let me ask you this. When was the last time you cried over your sin, but not just any sin, over your self-righteousness? 
When was the last time you mourned because you were self-righteous and arrogant? Now, I want to I poke on something a little bit. I will meet with all sorts of people, and I will put myself in this category, and do not misunderstand what I'm about to say. They will sin sexually, and they are an absolute wreck. And I've, I've, I have been in that exact same place. And then somebody is like so puffed up with pride and self-righteousness, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I know I need to work on that. But like, it doesn't break my heart in the same way. And I just, part of me goes, like, it's interesting. I'm not saying Jesus is like, hey, yeah, go do whatever you want and don't feel bad. But I think there's this weird thing. It's like, why do we cry over some sins and not others? Like, why, it's like, why is it, it's like, oh my gosh, I looked at that thing on my laptop. No, cries, you know? And it's like, then you like, then you don't do it the next week and you walk in arrogance towards others. And then you're like, and then you're, it's like, you, it's, God shows that in your heart and you're like, oh, I should probably work on that. There's like an imbalance, I think. You guys get what I'm getting at? Like there's an imbalance of like, I think we need to, all I'm saying is we need to be a little bit more broken over pride. And I think maybe not turn down our weeping with other sins, but I think maybe matching our, our conviction and attitude towards self-righteous sin in the same way, okay? So humble ourselves, weep, mourn, and confess our sin. All right, number three. We need to receive Christ's righteousness freely as a gift. Don't gloss over these words. If you're in church, you've, you've heard this thing before. Here's, here's one of my issues with sermons like this. Is like These sermons are really good at making you feel bad and making you feel bad and stay there. Where it's like, you're going to get them tonight. Like People will be like, dude, that sermon was so good. I was like, why? It convicted me. It's like the measurement is like level of conviction. Um, but it's weird. Sometimes I, like, I think we think healing of self-righteousness comes from just feeling bad enough about it. And like I said, mourning, grieving, wailing is part of the process. But if you just stop there and you're like, all right, well, like, like, let's confess that and leave, I think you missed the point. The point is not to like stop at your weeping. It's to go through that process to then receive what you have in Christ. So this is uh, what 2 Corinthians 5.21, popular vo- verse, but this is what it says. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us because we're sinners. So that what? In him, not in you, not in what you've done, not in even how good your repentance is, but in him, in what Christ has done, we might not just have, but become the righteousness of God. It's absolutely beautiful. If you read that verse and you're like, that's cool, I know that, check. You're missing the point. You, have, you guys, you have, we have nothing to offer Jesus. And God goes, I am going to be condemned in your place and you're going to become my righteousness. I'm going to transform you. I have a stupid, silly illustration, but it made me think of this. Um, We used to, this is dumb stuff we would do in high school, but I remember in like sports, football practice, you know, there's like footballs all over the field. And uh, occasionally, like, you have, like, all right, right, blow the whistle, like, time to pick up all the footballs, put everything away. And so, like, you know, you have this guy who's, like, picking up one football, picking up another. It's, like, picking up another. You know, he's, like, like, doing this, like, stumbling, trying to, like, carry all the footballs back. And then you're, like, watch this. And you throw a football at him because he has no hands, you know. And it's, like, boom. You know, it's, like, ha, ha, ha. It's, like, that's how guys have fun. We're really mature. (laughs) But that's why, or the only way that you could catch the football is if you drop what you, were, what you were holding to receive something else. As silly as that is, when you are walking through life trying to hold your own righteousness, trying to 
to compete, to measure, to be good, and you're holding, you know, it's hard, it's exhausting. You're trying to walk through life, you're trying to hold your own stuff. You can't receive the righteousness of Christ because you're already trying to create your own. Your hands are full. So the invitation of this, of this sermon from Jesus is, hey, stop trying to, you can't carry my righteousness when you're trying to create your own. Just drop it. That's the invitation. You don't have to pretend that you're good enough carrying all this stuff. Just receive mine. Does that make sense? All right, and then the last thing. We need to walk in confidence, gratefulness, and humility towards others. Guys, I just want to say this to you as we, as we end tonight. The motivation to follow Jesus and to uproot self-righteousness in our hearts is not so that we can be better Christians. It's not so that we can be like, oh, like I'm a little bit self-righteous. Here, here's the point. Guys, it's exhausting to try to maintain your own righteousness. And here's the thing. Even when you're at your best, humanly speaking, and you're winning and you're being good, you know a failure is right around the corner. Here's the thing. It's exhausting to create your own righteousness, but it's exhilarating to walk in the freedom of Christ. It is, like, if you have not experienced the freedom, and that's the invitation, if you've not experienced the freedom to be like, you don't have anything to offer. And that's amazing because the only thing that you really could offer is your sin. And even your righteousness is even a little bit tainted by sin. Here's what I know. The line between tax collector and Pharisee in my heart, I don't even know where it is sometimes. Both live in me. So the invitation of Jesus, and I would say the invitation for you tonight Drop the footballs. Drop the ways you're trying to measure up. Drop the ways you're looking down on others. Drop the ways you're trying to feel like, okay, I had a good week, now I can pray. I had a bad week, now I can. Like, let's just drop it, receive the righteousness of Christ that we would become his righteousness. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I love you. And I am so thankful that the righteousness of Christ is a gift. God, a gift by definition means it's a gift. Uh, I didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. Christ, if anybody had the right to be self-righteous towards us, it was you. And Christ, you, you humbled yourself. You took on human flesh. You became one of us. And you served us by dying in our place on the cross. So Jesus, we look at you, and Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you saw us, that you're with us, that you uh, are gracious towards us. Lord, I was praying this earlier, but Lord, I look back five years ago, and I'm embarrassed at how self-righteous I was. And God, I know I'll look back in five years from now and be embarrassed at how self-righteous I was. And God, many of us will have that same experience. And God, we are thankful that in spite of that, um, Lord, you have, you have committed yourself to us in grace. And so, Jesus, I pray, I pray that you would search us. I pray that you would show us ways that we're being self-righteous towards the world. God, I pray that you would show us ways we are being self-righteous towards other churches, towards other Christians, towards a spouse, towards a boyfriend or girlfriend, towards somebody in our small group, towards somebody at our job. Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves because if we humble ourselves, you will lift us up. We love you, Jesus. Amen.